Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. We're going to talk about a favorite subject of mine. This is always how I lead off the JFK topics because it's something in the past three months that's consumed my life and um, I'm very new to it. But Larry, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. I'm Larry Schnapp. I'm uh, a lawyer in New York. I basically practice environmental law um, and because of that, I have a lot of administrative law practice and litigation. Um, I've been in, I've been interested in the Kenny assassin, assassinations. You know, I was 10 years old when he was killed. Um, I did independent study in college on it. Uh, and, um, I've, you know, done, I, I'm not a researcher, like in terms of doing original research, but I, uh, used my legal skills to kind of analyze the case. And, um, I was a former chair of the Capitol legal committee. We had put on a mock trial in 2017 uh, at the South Texas College of Law in Houston. We got a hung jury today, which was, um, there's been seven mock trials held on the Kennedy assassination since 1967 that have been uh, organized by either law schools or bar associations. Six of them have resulted in an acquittal or a hung jury. Only one resulted in uh, a conviction, and that was the 1986 um, mock trial that Vince Bulgosi and Jerry Spence uh, participated in. And it's generally accepted that Jerry Spence was not prepared and was trying to do his usual court theatrics to influence uh, the court. Um, I also, with Bill Simpich, um, what Bill Simpich and I work with the Oswald defense team in the mock trial in 2017. We then did a court of inquiry in 2018 uh, a court of inquiry is a, uh, a mechanism, a mock court of inquiry, is a mechanism that one has in Texas that can use to exonerate an, a conviction. It's sort of like an early version of an innocence project proceeding. Um, and then starting last year with the, uh, when we knew that the uh, President Trump's order to postpone the records till October 26th of 2021 was coming due, I organized uh, a group of lawyers. Uh, we and we try to get an effort to mobilize support to get President Biden to release uh, the rest of the records. When he failed to do so on grounds of the pandemic, uh, I I filed a lawsuit with the National Archives to try to get the underlying correspondence, uh, the memos, the emails that led to both the Trump and Biden uh, orders postponing release of the records. The government settled my case against the archives. So this past year, I've been getting document production, which has been very interesting. And we can talk about that during our um, talk today. And then uh, this year, I also, um, the lawyer group that I formed, we um, we have filed a, um, we worked on, on a complaint to uh, sue President Biden and the National Archives for the 2018, his 2018 order. And that complaint was filed uh, on October 19th, I believe, in the Northern District of California. 
Mary Farrell's the plaintiff. Uh, we have two individual plaintiffs as well, Gary Aguilar and Ting Thompson, who I think uh, are known by your audience. When it comes to the release of documents and then the postpone of why they are not releasing the ones that they should have released by 2017 or however long, it just keeps getting postponed and postponed and postponed. What do you think they are? Do you think that's involvement with, I, I even hate saying this word because people roll their eyes, but the MK Ultra aspect of things. I mean, I'm not talking about Jack Ruby or any of this, but assassination attempts on Castro, there's a name that comes up. And I've had Stephen Kinzer who wrote about Sidney Gottlieb and he was a part of MK Ultra. And that name gets brought up on assassination attempts. I believe it was him that used the method to try and take out Castro's beard to assassinate his character. And then Joyon West was also another member that worked at the Ohio University who was the person that administered a flu shot to Jack. That's the only thing I can think of that could be so secret because if you look at the church committee that's all they wanted to know was that darkness that really crazy covert stuff that was going on in mk ultra i think it's like a 160 something page document on it that goes into the amount of money that was funded and the certain universities they just didn't disclose names they just disclosed the number and also mental institution and prisons that's the only thing i could think of that would be a big national security issue um and like I said, the Kennedy assassination, I think that just gets intertwined because of the names that are also mentioned when it comes to Castro and it also comes to Jack Ruby. Well, I think certainly in 1964, the motivations, and this is probably the reason why the Kennedy family went along with the, um, the cover-up was the initial concern was um, for a 24-year-old man, Oswald had come across a lot of interesting people and had lots of interesting experiences, a very fascinating character. And um, he touched upon a lot of national security and intelligence gathering operations. Um, and so I think there was a dual concern in 1964 about not exposing methods and, and sources and also for the Kennedy family, um, not if you start going down the road of who killed the president, you were going to inevitably come up with the exiles, the mafia, and the assassination attempts against Castro, just because it was going to just, he came across those people, and it was going to come out. And that would have ruined Bobby Kennedy's career um, in 1964, you know, political career. Um, in fact, Roger Stone wrote a book in 2013 claiming it was LBJ that was behind the assassination. And when um, and a lot of people start in this, they start their research in the in the Kennedy field uh, with a pre-existing notion, and then they look for evidence to reinforce that that belief. They don't really look at the evidence objectively. A lot of people do this. There's very few people that kind of just go in with an open blank slate. So. When, when Roger Stone was at the Baker conference, the Judith Baker conference, and discussing his book, at the end, I got up for Q&A, and I said, Mr. Stone, wouldn't you agree that pl plotting to kill the president is a very uh, dangerous endeavor? Because first of all, you don't know if it's going to work. And second of all, if you get discovered, you're going to be hung for treason or shot. And he goes, absolutely. And I said, and wouldn't you agree that President Johnson was one of the shrewdest politicians of our, of our time? You know, oh, one of the best, the best of his generation. Okay, so Mr. Stone, you think if, Rogers, if, if LBJ really wanted to get rid of Kennedy in 64, uh, don't you think that all he had to do is get his buddy Hoover 
to release all the dirt he had on Kennedy between the the, the womanizing and the and the meds and the drugs and I mean the man would have been ruined for sixty four and he just turned beet red and came up with some argument that he couldn't uh, you know Hoover didn't have the power to do that which I'm not quite sure why not but he never you know so uh, and also Hoover had a problem in 1964 Hoover had a pony problem he liked to he liked to bet at the races. And it's come out that Frank Costello, the, who was the head of the mafia in New York, in New York, used to fix races for him. Or he would tell Hoover uh, which races were being fixed. So Hoover could make, and Hoover would make two bets. He would make his own bet personally for 10 bucks. And this is John Davis has this all, John Davis and um, I think Lamar uh, Waldron has this also. Uh, but John Davis really you know, drilled down on the mafia angle. And, um, and then he would have uh, his, assistant, his, his boyfriend, uh, placed the big bet. And so now you have the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. Um, if you start going down the route where the mafia is involved with the CIA and the exiles, th this is going to be explosive. And, and Hoover even said to somebody, I don't know who he said it to, that if the truth ever came out, it would, it would shake the foundations of our country. That's, that's Hoover saying that. That's on record. So uh, I don't think there's going to be a smoking gun per se, like this is how we're going to kill the president. Um, for example, when Harvey ran ZR rifle, uh, William Harvey, he made sure that there'd be nothing in writing. There was that was like you don't put things in writing. Um, so th there's not going to be any, you know, smoking gun to that effect. Uh, there now there are probably some records that are legitimately being withheld. Um, so let let's be a little. Um, great uh, gracious here and there are people probably that worked for the Mexican government uh, that were uh, informants for the United States and there may be some people in Europe that you know were spies for us and it's possible either that they're still alive or that they have family and that the government made promises to them that they would never reveal their identity so I could see the government saying, look, if we go back on those promises, then who's going to believe our future promises? So there may be some minor, a handful. I can't, I mean, let's say, let's be generous and say 100. <laughs> no. um, the two big exceptions that have been, been used for the postponement grounds has been national security, and then the FBI has been doing law enforcement. The FBI had Roughly 7,400 files um, that were being withheld um, in March of 2018. Roughly 6,000 of them were mafia records. So what? What is you know what? Why are they being held? Withheld? I mean, are they because they were informants, the mafia? Do they tell a different story that maybe we don't want to know? So. Um, to give you an example of how some of the stupidness of the stupidity of some of these uh, redactions are. So last year, the CIA released a document that discussed Oswald in Japan. There was nothing in the document that we didn't already know. The reason that the CIA had been holding it all these years was because in the 1960s, um, the information had been gathered by an electronic listening station in Australia. 
And in the 1960s, the Australian government asked us, this, our government, not to reveal that we had a listening station on Australian soil because the Australian citizens were not aware of that. So flash forward now to the 20 teens, and there is a TV show playing in Australia called Pine Gap, which is about this listening station. <laughs> and while this TV show is being shown on Australian TV, the CIA is still withholding this memo because they made this promise to the Australian government. At some point, finally, you know, in, in uh, the last year or so, they realized the absurdity of holding back that record. So now that little factoid is, I guess, goes to support those who believe there's no conspiracy and this is just bureaucratic, you know, excessive secrecy. I don't think that's the case, but I'm just saying that's an example of some of the things that are being withheld for no good reason. When I when I spoke with Thunheim, he mentioned that there were going to be two things in the way of uh, declassifying these things or why they might keep some things classified. And that's one is a name of an individual that might be involved is in there. He said that's more likely not the case because most of the people are dead. There might be an exception of one or two. Or he also said they're using there was a technique that was being used that is still involved in some of these intelligence operations today. And that's kind of where I get that nervousness, like wiretaps, I don't think would be enough to classify. That's known information but it's like the mk ultra stuff it's the mob connections the things that make the agency look bad and if you look at a lot of documents the embarrassment that garrison if you look at the files i'm not saying garrison's bad i'm saying if you look at the files in the 21 release what they have is garrison's attempt to embarrass the agency that's not looking for the truth. That's not being open and transparent in the way that you're releasing documents. That's a memo that's stating as the agency talking about that this guy is going to open up some scabs and it's going to release some pus. And that is not very good when you're looking at the transparency that you want with your government. And that's kind of what I look at is like, it's going to look really bad if they start opening up the organized crime angle. I mean, we know that they delivered you know, poison pills or those were returned back to the agency. They have explosive cigars. I mean, for God's sakes, the mob didn't come up with making a conch explode in next to Castro's face. There's no way. And there's a lot of things, character assassination on Castro, making his beard fall out using MK Ultra people, that makes the agency look bad. So they're looking at this as not as a preservation of our tactics that were being used. They're looking at it like, oh my God, we're going to look really bad. I mean, look at the course of the past couple of years with the exposure on the government. Social media has opened up. I mean, we know a lot of things. The Rational Observer, a fake FBI magazine created by Hoover to tear or take away all these activist power and saying oh going to vietnam war is actually a good thing i mean these are not things that aged well at all i don't even know if they really were accepted back then but we have enough exposure on this to understand and it's like well hell how bad were they back then like and that's what's the real fear well and and in fact uh using those grounds is direct violation of the statute because the jfk records act says embarrassment is not a ground for postponement there, there is enumerated, there's seven enumerated grounds. Those are the only grounds that can be used. And it expressly says in, embarrassment to an agency is not grounds for postponement. So not only does it not look good and not is it not only contrary to the goals of the statute, it's actually in violation. And I will tell you what I learned from my lawsuit, my own lawsuit against the National Archives, which has not come out yet, 
I mean, I've told some reporters about it and some people are gonna write about this was, so let me just take a step back. So the, the records were originally supposed to be released 25 years from the enactment date of the statute, which was October 26, 2017. Um, in, in September, and, and the government set up a process where the National Archives would consult with the agencies, determine which records they were willing to postpone, uh, release, and which ones they're gonna postpone. And then the, the memo had to go to the president for his approval. So when the first postponement came, when the first deadline came, uh, now remember they've had 25 years to look at these records. Uh, the NARA begins, the archives begins reviewing records with the agencies in July of 2017. And immediately National Archives, the archivist sends, uh, actually the, the chief operating officer of the National Archives sends letters to the FBI and to CIA saying that we disagree with your grounds for postponement. They are not consistent with the act. And in fact, they're not consistent with the ARBS interpretations. They go back and forth, no resolution. Um, apparently in sometime in September, the decision was made in the White House to postpone the records. So there are then 12 drafts of a memo that's written on the letterhead of the National Archives, the archivist, to the president recommending that he that he postpone the records for six more months so that they the national archives can can work out these disagreements so the national archives went from disagreeing with the grounds doing a 180 degrees they being a good bureaucrat they fell on their sword to saying that we the archives recommend to the president that you postpone the records for six more months and we we believe this is consistent with the act so they basically, this is let this memo, you can see this. Well, I, now I can't, I haven't seen the drafts because they've been redacted and I'm gonna sue to get those redactions uh, lifted. But you, I can glean from the emails that are attaching these documents that, you know, the changes are being made by the White House and the archives has to sign on to them as a, and you have to understand also bureaucratically, uh, the people they're dealing with are freedom information officers from all the agencies who are getting directions from their bosses. But the people that are interacting with each other, they interact with each other all the time, right? So they're not going to like, they're not going to piss off each other. I mean, they all recognize that they're just being message carriers, right? They're being told from people. So they all work with each other very friendly, cooperatively, but people above them are telling them what to do. So then we have a postponement uh, till... April of 2018, and the same thing happens. Uh, NARA begins sending out recommendations, uh, contacts the agencies in January, they push back, and the same thing happens. NARA doesn't agree, there's been no progress since the fall, and now the president, someone in the White House decides, actually, the FBI wanted um, a five-year postponement, the Department of Defense wanted a 10-year postponement. And I guess they settled on three and a half years. Uh, and there's an email from the chief operating officer of the National Archives to the archivist, David Ferrara, saying the president's gonna is gonna have to own this date, <laughs> which shows you they dis they disagree with that date. You know, that's where this is this is the this is the date that's been given to them, and they're gonna and he's gonna have to take you know authorship of this date. And so then in 2018. 
April of 20, well, March of 2018, and the memo goes from the archivist to the president recommending uh, a three and a half year postponement. The president then says he has no choice but to follow this recommendation. That's obviously been orchestrated. It's an orchestrated dance. Um, the archives is being told by the powers that be to make this request. They make the request. The president then uses this request as a basis for his decision. Um, and he, he cites uh, the statutory language about only in rare cases, are there to be any further postponements? So there's postponements. And then of course, nothing is done until um, the summer of 2021. So what do we do in the spring of 2021? I write a letter to Carolyn Maloney, who's the chair of the uh, oversight committee um, for the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives Oversight Committee has continuing jurisdiction over the act. They have never held an oversight meeting after since 1994. They held one oversight meeting one year after the statute was passed to find out where things were. And that was because they, the board had not been, the ARP had not been selected yet, or there was delays in getting the ARP selected. So they had no oversight hearings. Uh, I asked for an oversight hearing. I made the mistake of only signing it uh, my name because she's my constituent. I learned a lesson from that experience, but that letter was ignored. We then got the uh, Public Interest Declassification Board to put this on their agenda. They're an obscure Washington agency that uh, advises the president on, um, on overclassification issues. The chair of that person, although he was, um, uh, for most people, he would be called a Trumper, um, regardless of his political affiliation, he is really, really serious about the Kennedy assassination. Ironically, some of the members of the board uh, don't want to touch the Kennedy assassination. They, they feel it's a third rail. But nevertheless, he was able to get a hearing held, uh, and they wrote a letter to the president in September of 21, urging release of, of records as appropriate. Uh, there are a number of Congress people, headed by Steve Cohen uh, from Tennessee, who wrote a letter to the president. Um, then I got my group together. We wrote a letter to the president. We actually prepared a brief explaining why what we wanted to make sure there was no further um, uh, misinterpretations, as we might say, of the statute, laying out what the actual statutory language was and how it should be interpreted. And then, you know, Biden then at the last minute said, due to the pandemic, um, they're going to postpone it for one more year, actually for, um, I guess, 14 months to um, December of this year. Um, so there was a very small release of records in December of last year. And under his order, the agencies had till September 1st to decide what work with, work with NARA. Uh, to decide what records they were going to uh, request to be withheld. And then on September 1st, they had to notify, officially notify NARA. And then they had a month to work out the disagreements. Uh, at the end of by October 1st, the uh, agencies had two choices. This is October 1st this, this month, this past, you know, this, this past October 1st. They had to either withdraw their request for postponement or elevate it to the president. I understand from my sources that um, the CIA has made a number, both the, both the FBI and the CIA, which have most of the records that are being withheld. Um, the FBI apparently has been a little better this time around. Um, when they postponed last time in 2018, they were using the 100-year rule, which is that if you can't determine if a person is alive or not, 
then you then use 100 years from the date of their birth. Now, the archives response was, you know, you can check on Google to see if these people are alive. <laughs> Dude, with today's modern uh, medicine, I hope to God we're not making it past 100 on that one. <laughs> but they used the 100 year rule in a number of cases. Anyway, so we know I know for a fact that the CIA is um, asking for more records to be further postponed. Um, and by the way, when President Biden issued his order, he used the wrong statutory language. Instead of saying identify harm, he said they had to, ex they had to uh, explain their anticipated harm, which anticipated harm is not current harm. It's harm that could happen in the future. The statute requires there to be a actual identified harm on a document by document basis. The, um, the agency, the president, if, gonna, if he's going to certify postponement, is supposed to do a, a non-classified explanation of the harm that's posed by the release of this particular document, and then explain and then balance that harm against the American public's very strong interest in, in having their records released, which is what Congress said, we have an overriding interest in these documents. And then make that, make an explanation of how he, what the harm was and how he determined the harm ex out, um, outweighed the public interest. Neither President Biden or President Trump did that. They just made a sweeping assertion of 15,000 records saying these records pose a risk to national security and therefore, and they exceed the, net, the public interest and therefore I'm making, um, you know, I'm certifying further postponement. So they violated the law by not doing the document by document. And it's gotta be clear and convincing evidence, which is like an evidentiary standard like we have in criminal law. It isn't just a mere preponderance, like 51% of the evidence. You got to have like 90% certainty that this harm outweighs what the identified um, public interest. So uh, he used anticipated harm rather than identified harm. Um, so. Well, nobody wants to take the blame for any of these documents. Whatever gets exposed, nobody wants to deal with that mess. That's why they keep shoving it on to the next person. I would think you would get more publicity if you actually released them all, whether you pissed off your agencies or not. Um, there, there, I don't think there's a smoking gun. I don't think that. But I think it's going to uncover and maybe fill some gaps in a story where we might be able to. I mean, the innocence of Oswald is a big thing I kind of fight with. Um I've went back and forth with the Walker shooting and, you know, the Kennedy. I don't think he could have took both of those. Maybe one, sure. But the, the polarization of those political sides. And then the best piece of evidence that they use for Oswald is we have this backyard photograph that has all three things to incriminate him. And I go, here's my example of how to easily debunk that. If I see a picture of you with a beer in your hand, do I assume you drove home? And there's no evidence there to support the fact that this backyard photograph makes him the killer of the president. I think that's a good example, but it's a lot of that stuff where this anti there can be no conspiracy. It has to be one person is something that has now echoed throughout the whole entire JFK case where you start looking at the connections with the mob and Castro and all these things that it couldn't be. And it had to be this one assailant. Well, there, there was a study done, uh, a book published right before the assassination um, that Alan Dulles gave to each of the commissioners when on their first meeting. And I actually was forced to read that book when I wrote my independent study project in college um, that it basically said that in America, only in America, assassinations are done by lone gunmen. Um, it's not done by... Um, 
conspiracies. And, and, and Dulles gave that book to each of the commissioners before um, they start, started the first meeting. So that already, um, you know, and, and, and honestly, the key person in linking Oswald to the assassination is Marina Oswald. Um, she was the only person in some cases that could be used to uh, link Oswald to the particular piece of evidence. So for the backyard photographs, only she can authenticate them. Uh, and you're right, mere possession of a rifle does not mean that you shot it, you used it to shoot somebody. Um, she also is the only person that authenticate the alleged letter that he wrote uh, to her the night of the Walker shooting, um, saying if this happens, you know, here's the people to contact and that sort of stuff. Um, the evidentiary trail, the providence of that letter is very suspect because the police went through the the walk the um, um, Ruth ba Ruth Payne's house twice Friday and Saturday never found the note. Um, the day before the FBI is supposed to um, submit its 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 findings of its own investigation to the president, suddenly this letter is found in a, a book, a cookbook, I think it was. Um, so, and of course, Marina Oswald was held in custody um, in that motel. And there's a New York Times article from the first anniversary of the assassination where she says that she feared that she was going to be deported. Well, there's a memo from Hoover that states that you can threaten deportation, um, but don't actually do it is what he repeats after. And I think somebody went a little bit too far to create the image of deportation, um, either if it was Secret Service or whoever. I mean, there's someone a lot said of something and, you know, it could have been one of the Russian translators who could have said something in Russian to her, which the, the English. But the point is that if you're a mother of two babies, you have a choice. This is like Sophie's choice and a, a version of Sophie's choice. Do you throw your uh, your ex-husband, your dead husband under the bus um, in order to protect your babies? Or do you tell the truth and risk your babies being becoming orphans? I mean, you know, it, I, I don't blame her for, for that being, an, you know, what, what, that's the natural reaction that a mother would do in that situation. So um, anyway, so what, right now, as we're talking on November 8th, um, the the agencies I the, so that the agencies sent their request up to the president, the White House, on October first to postpone records. If I'm assuming it was is being done now was what was done with the Clinton administration when ARB was in power when the ARB was in existence and they proposed either that a record was an assassination record or they proposed to release it. If the agency objected, they would then go up elevated to the office of the president and the first instinct of the office of the president in that, that time, and I suspect it's going to be now, is, okay, guys, try try again. And so I think this month is the month where the agencies in the archive is trying to work out uh, the disagreement. And if they can't reach an agreement by Thanksgiving, I suspect, um, then the decision, decision will be made because the, the memo, the order is supposed to, the decision is supposed to be made by October 15th. And um, the, um, it takes about a week or two weeks to get the memo written because it's gotta be drafted. It's gotta be um, signed, <coughs> reviewed by the Department of Justice. And it's gonna have to go back and forth between the White House and the National Archives. So um, I think that um, 
So I, I think uh, I think that um, a decision, a final decision, has to be made uh, by the White House by Thanksgiving because it's going to take a week to ten days at least um, to get the order that's going to be issued in final form. There's going to be a draft. It's going to be circulated uh, to the to National Archives and the agencies for their their sign in, and then it's going to have to go to Department of Justice for review because the Department of Justice reviews any orders issued by the president. Just make sure it's legally correct. So as we're speaking, decisions are being made about what records are to be released on, Dece on December 15th. Wouldn't they just solve it all now if they just opened up all the rest of the documents to everybody, at least whether it's a loan nut or not? I don't believe it's a loan nut, but I mean, they, all this conspiracy and all this 60 years of just back and forth bickering and fighting, I mean, Honestly, I mean, Operation Mockingbird, I know if you probably know what that is, but these influence of the government into the media, I mean, Life Magazine's a good example of media manipulation, and there's plenty of other ones that we could list off as examples, but I mean, it's divisivizing a population. I mean, people are just going uh, tearing at each other's nuts, basically, to try and, you know, figure this whole entire thing out, whether it's people blogging all night about how Oswald was the lone assassin and encountering points and every new, oh, I see that now. And it's just like, look, trying to understand it from a historical value standpoint, I just, I don't even want to solve the case. I just want to know what the hell was going on in 63, because this is like, a chain reaction of events that it's for me, it's just difficult to understand. I think it's for a lot of people. It's difficult to understand. I mean, you got to think of a mafia connection. You got to understand was Oswald in Mexico or not. You got to understand if he got syphilis while he was at Atsugi, you got to understand a bunch of different things where it's just like, and it's all coming out over such a long period of time where if you try and explain anybody the assassination now, they'll roll their eyes and say conspiracy. And it's like, well, you got to understand this is in a 60 years worth of documentation that has slow rolled out. This isn't like the big picture was painted at the moment it happened. This is a slow trickle of information. And all the people that have invested their whole lives into researching into this, I mean, I feel for them because they put so much massive amount of work in trying to expose, at least say what actually happened, or at least get some sliver of transparency out of the government. Well, and this, you know, I started with the premise that the proposition that this is, this is about Cold War history of our country. The American people deserve to know what our government was doing in the early, you know, in the Cold War. And, and if we were, if the CIA had an operational interest in Oswald, or if Joe Anides was running the DRE in, in, in New Orleans, and I mean, all this stuff, we are entitled to know what our government was doing. And that, that's, you start with that, with that beginning, that this is a history about the history of our country and how decisions were made. And, and then you start going into you know, some of the ramifications from it. So if there was a cover up, um, and they got away with it, then did that help us? Did that help then people decide that, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna fake the Gulf of Tonkin shooting because we got away with the Kennedy assassination. Now we can get us into the Vietnam War. And then you get, um, was Richard Nixon concerned that um, the Democratic Party knew about what he was doing with the Cubans in 1960 and 59? He was behind the effort to, you know, he, he's the one that was supervising the effort to um, assassinate Castro. Eisenhower delegated that to him. He, that was his, he was in charge of that group. Banco International. And, and so was that the reason that they were invading, that they went into the Watergate to see what the, see the, the Democrats knew about, you know, assassination attempts on Castro that could be used to embarrass a sitting president? And then they start using the same Cubans that were involved with the Bay of Pigs and perhaps 
in some of these exile groups that may have been involved with the assassination. I mean, and so this the 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 embers of the 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 the, the tentacles started impacting more and more of our of our ongoing history. So then you get Jerry Ford now. Once Jerry Ford becomes so, you know, there is a theory out there that when Haldeman, when Nixon told Haldeman to try to get Helms to shut down the FBI investigation and says, you tell him that this is going to rip off the scab of the of the Bay of that Bay of Pigs thing. And Haldeman, who you know was nothing was put under his name without his approval. His book says that that was Nixon's code word for the Kennedy assassination. Um, whether that's true or not. I can validate that on one aspect. I've heard that. And I had Jeff Shepard who defended Nixon during the Watergate hearings. And I asked him three times about the Nixon tapes and that 18 minutes of missing tapes. If it was the Kennedy assassination, all three times he dodged my question where I said, stop ignoring me and answer the question. So he didn't, but I just, I think that shows a little bit considering that he was one of these people that were defending Nixon and, you know, he was able, he was there, to, he was on his defending team. So I just go, I mean, that to me, I, I don't know. There's a lot of weird connections. Jeff like Shepard, I'm really impressed you got Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Shepard. He is a really smart man. I've written, I read both his books. Um, he has some really good points uh, about the, um, the, the legal, the, some of the shenanigans that went on that if it was anyone but Nixon. Um, it's sort of like with our former president, certain, some things, if someone else said something, oh yeah, sure. Like for example, when our former president said that windmills were killing birds, migratory birds, that's a fact. And that's a problem with the siding of windmills, but because he said it, people, you know, oh, he's just anti-renewable power pro anyway. Um, I agree. That's the advising a person. Yes. Yes. And so then, uh, so then when, when Haldeman goes to, to Helms, Helms, who's a very composed man and everything suddenly has nothing to do with the Bay of Pigs. Um, so now if there's a perception that Nixon is now potentially a risk, his removal becomes more possible when Jerry Ford becomes president, vice president, right? And then now Nixon, now Nixon can be taken down for Jerry Ford to become in there. And who was Jerry Ford? He was a member of the Warren Commission. And when everything breaks in 75 uh, with the church committee, uh, then he appoints the Rockefeller Commission. And by the way, the Warren Commission was never authorized to classify records. There was an obscure hearing in November of 75 led by Bella Abzug, a congressman from New York. Um, and she had David Bellin, who was a not only a staff attorney for the Warren Commission, but was also the uh, executive director, I believe, or at least the general counsel of the Rockefeller uh, Commission. And, that, and that's the commission that uh, President Ford uh, uh, appointed to sort of look into the CIA, um, hoping that we'd cut off the, the church committee findings. And of course, it came up with a whitewashed, whitewashed report. Um, but David Bellin testified in this open hearing, and this is this for some, this hearing has been lost to history because it is sandwiched by the Church Committee and also by the House Select Assassinations Committee. But I have it; I found it. And David Bellin says, you know, the, the Warren Commission never had authority to classify records. In fact, he and other staff attorneys were not authorized to look at classified records. So, <laughs> if they were actually 
classifying records, then he and his staff attorneys were violating the law because they were looking at records they would not be allowed to look at. It was a whole. So when Jerry Ford formed the, the Rockefeller Commission, he specifically gave them authority to classify records. That there's an executive order that um, presidents periodically amend um, for their liking, but the first one was issued by President Truman, but the one that was in effect in 64 was the one issued by President Eisenhower. And it identified agencies that had the authority to classify records. And LBJ did not give the Warren Commission that authority. What happened was Lee Rankin, on his own, uh, told the, uh, the, the, the court transcriber to mark the, the, the meetings of the Warren Commission and the deposition testimony as top secret. And they were stamped. And that's how they became classified and um, completely without any authority. And um, uh, but Jerry Ford knew of that issue. And so therefore, he made sure that his Rockefeller Committee Commission would have the authority to classify records. Um, and then when Reagan came in, he Jimmy Carter relaxed the national security um, uh, rules to allow for Jimmy Carter was the first president to require in his executive order on national security to require agencies to balance identifiable harm against the public interest. When Reagan came in, he eliminated the balancing act. And he also allowed not only agencies to classify, identify records, he also, no, it was G Pre President Bush, the younger Bush, uh, his executive order allowed agencies to reclassify records after they've been released. That's the issue is that the destruction of documents because they feel fit that it's about enough time to destroy those and also the reclassification where we're losing documentation. Um, there's so many sites of people that were researchers that are no longer here with us, but they paid for their website to be 100% um, like seven, eight years after their death. Thank God for them. But when I would go and click on these documents, that would send me the link to the document profile. Can't find it. It's a 404. I'm like, well, what is that? And that's the reclassification of important documents. Some of those are on the rifle um, that was found in the book depository building. We have a lot of documentation on it. People have screenshotted it and put it up there. But there's issues with reclassification. You don't, there's so much documentation. You don't know when you're supposed to save one. Then you go, hey, I saw this. And that's why nobody could ever find anything that they mentioned is because trying to find it, they locked it back up. And, you know, when I got my, well, I, get, I get a document production every month from the government on, in, in settlement of my lawsuit. And like, you know, on one email, they'll block out the entire email. And then later on, on the same page, that person's email is fully is fully there. So which one was right? And it's very arbitrary. You have oftentimes you have contractors hired by the agencies. They're given a training as to what's classified, and and they, they you know the standards vary. And if you can't if you can't declassify a sixty year old murder case, how are we going to get? We have a we have an epidemic of overclassification now in our country. This is one reason why this is important because we have to start. American people deserve to know what their what their country's doing, except in those very extreme situations. I mean, I know you were told. I know Judge Tynum, and I respect him enormously. Um, I think his his board exceeded all expectations of what Congress had intended or thought was possible. I mean, I think they did enormous work. Uh, the, the the stuff that they did, and there's still so much. There are still, by the way. When they went out of business, their work wasn't done, wasn't finished. 
there, they, it, there's still a whole bunch of outstanding record search requests that were made in 1998 by the ARB, Assassinations Records Review Board, that have not been completed yet. And one of the biggest ones is the Robert Kennedy files. The, the, the family, uh, there are records that Robert Kennedy took when Bobby, when John Kennedy was killed, Robert Kennedy grabbed the files from his brother's safe or whatever they were in the, in the White House, in the Oval Office, and took them with him. And there are stories about what those records contain. And some of them are, you know, lurid tapes of him having conversations with some women, but there are also records about Cuba and uh, they have not been released. When the ARB went out of business, they were in the process of negotiating with the, with the RK family about releasing those records. Now they're technically in the possession of the JFK library, which is technically uh, a branch of the National Archives, but they have not been released. They haven't been reviewed. They're not part of the JFK collection. Um, and I sent the letter, uh, well, I got a bunch of people, historians, lawyers, re researchers, writers, sent a letter to the National, to the uh, archivist this past February asking where they were on the outstanding record searches. And we never got a response. So we've included as part of our uh, ask in the lawsuit uh, that Mary Farrell filed, we've included the uh, those outstanding requests as we want, we are asking the court to issue as part of the order, uh, the injunctive relief that we're asking for the court from the court, one of them is to order the government to complete those those uh, searches because those are searches for records that the ARB identified as potentially assassination records that were never turned over to the ARB and therefore never turned over to the National Archives and they're not part of the collection. And you're right, uh, the Secret Service, for example, destroyed the trips, the, um, the records involving trips for the president in the fall of 63 after they were requested by the ARB to um, produce them. And nobody was ever, no one got in trouble for that. Uh, they claim, and then I think the, uh, either the Office of Naval Intelligence or one of the army agencies allegedly destroyed Oswald records as part of normal record retention policy. It's the 201 file. I have a document from the, and this is where I say, looking into the HSCA for what I'm speaking with Blakey, um, he gave room and then he took room and a lot of it went in a direction where it was interest in Cuba, not necessarily with Oswald, but what they did come across is the 201 file on Oswald was not a normal 201 file. It was a lot larger than they expected. Um, and a lot of it that was missing, it was destroyed. And they think that's a lot of associations with a lot of his overseas um, adventures that he was going on and maybe connections that he was making along the way as well too, which leaves this whole gap. Was he central intelligence agency or not? Give it whatever it is. He was 24 years old. That's my age. It's partially the reason why I get hooked into the um, into his life a little. Can you bit. imagine? Imagine if your life, 24, the things he did in the so the last eight years of your life, he went into the Marines at 16, right? Can you imagine the things that he did in his life? Can you imagine? He allegedly killed the president. I got to stab somebody and get my rep up or something. Jesus. But you know, I mean. He goes to Mech he goes to Asugi and he's now U2, you know, about the U2 stuff. He goes to, to Russia and he, and he's in Mexico City. I, I mean, I know um, college students go on, you know, they're overseas for their sort of semester, but the stuff that he did, I mean, he had a lifetime of experience in like eight years. 
Yeah. And um, I think with the HSCA, a lot of things came up that are interesting. And I, I mean, I could show you a document if you want proof of it, but there was this aspect and I posted it in this in the, in the education forums. At the point, the HSCA had a bunch of safes that were littered throughout their whole committee building. And one safe in particular had two sets of combinations on it. One was for the CIA and one was for the HSCA. Now, they fired the CIA agent that went through the safe without any permission of anybody else. Somehow he got two codes. He got the HSCA's code. And he got the CIA code. And he went in there and opened up a lot of folders that had autopsy photos that were in plastic bags. He messed up the organization of them, whether he took one out or he added one in, I have no clue, but it became this discrepancy. Now that's manipulation of evidence right there. Also a journal that was apparently supposed to be locked in one of these safes that was sitting on a balcony. He opened it up and said, well, it was kind of opened up to the first page and I eventually kind of flipped through a couple. So you touched it and you went through it and you didn't use gloves. You got your fingerprints littered all throughout. Now, the document does state that he was fired, but Blakey kind of raised hell with this. And he was like, this is an issue. What's going on? That gave him some leverage to get a couple more things about Cuba. But then eventually you see that the CIA was saying, hey, this is against this, this, this. And they started bringing up a bunch of legal language, which eventually Blakey's kind of steam and momentum back down a little bit. So I get where people can say that he kind of folded under pressure. I go, but you also are requesting documents from a government agency. I mean, the Freedom of Information Act is important, but it's also asking. It's not saying I'm demanding this. I mean, they could just reject it to you. They did the same thing with um, Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, when he wrote about the Manson murders and Joy on West Connection. He had a reporter file the same thing he filed for and got a completely different answer saying none of these files exist. We don't know what you're talking about. And it was a reporter. She was like, wait, I'm friends with these people. They should tell me the truth. He goes, well, I showed you the documents. They're lying to you. So right there, you get into this weird aspect of the media and the government. I mean, obviously, you know, people that will take a story and in essence, they might give up one. I mean, I asked that question to Posner, and I, I think this is what Boogie Losey probably did. He thought there was conspiracy in the RFK assassination, but no conspiracy in the JFK assassination. I go, did you cut a deal to get inside information? Did you cut a deal? Now, Tom O'Neill also wrote about Boogie Losey. He committed perjury in the Manson trial. He put a prosecutor on the defendant's side, and he lied about a bunch of stuff. He also had a bunch of scandals going on where... He actually beat a woman who was pregnant. She ended up miscarrying um, the baby. I have all the files on that. I posted in the forum and I got lit up. All these conspiracy people always attack the lone nut, you know, Bugulosi after he's dead. I go, what have you guys been doing to Oswald for the past 60 years? Like you have no evidence besides a picture and a couple of other things that don't track back to Oswald and AJ Heidel ID. So I, I get into a tough situation here and I'm trying to understand the whole thing. I go, I think you just need to get the truth. And that truth comes from document releases. It comes from no smoking gun document, but just clarity on the situation. I, 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 think, I think your readers need to understand also that, um, as I said before, people sometimes, most people come, come into the assassination with the bias. And then most, so when, when I meet someone that's alone, that believes in the official theory, you know, I mean, I'm, I come from a time when politics did not govern your relationships um, that, you know, and, and also, you know, the both parties had their liberal and conservative wings. So just because you were Republican or Democrat didn't mean you were a bad guy. You could still you could still perhaps have a you know liberal Republican that's friendly with the Democrat because, you know, anyway, what I, I 
so I'm, I'm used to, and I was used to be a reporter. So I'm used to asking people questions and finding out why they think the way they think. And every, without, without um, exception, every person that I have asked who believes that it's that in the official theory, they, I ask them, you know, if they, since they believe that the crime has been solved, why are they spending their remaining years of their life uh, and their weekends, you know, talking to people like me on the internet? I mean, you know, you think to solve the crime is solved, go on and enjoy something else in your life. And every one of them feel that they're being a patriot, that they're defending America's honor, that they believe that the American people began that the loss in faith in our country and our form of life and our institutions is because of the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories. And they feel like they're being patriots defending America's honor. Um, but you know what they don't defend, though? They don't defend the King assassination. If you say the FBI had involvement into that, they back down. And I go, is that like a race thing? Is that a society standard thing? Probably. I think you, you, that, that crosses. Uh, you the, can't have those flimsy morals, though. I don't get that. Well, you know, look, uh, when you're dealing with something that's emotional, because this is an emotional response, right? So you'll have people like Michael Schumer, the people that believe that, you know, the anti-conspiracy type thinking people, they will say that the reason that the American people believe there was a conspiracy because they can't get their hands around the fact that a nobody took down a great man. Well, I will tell you equally that there are many people out there who can't believe that there could be a conspiracy to take down a president in the United States. And that is equally as forceful a feeling as this other theory. And, but you don't hear the lone gunman period people talking about that, but that is just as much. They cannot believe they think of it's about American exceptionalism. If there was a conspiracy to take down President Kennedy that was either um, hatched or carried out by the federal government, that would destroy the notion of American greatness. That would make us, we would, you know, the Europeans always have, have a history, centuries of, of conspiracies and plots and, right? But we're different. We're the, we're, the, we're the United States of America. We are different as if we were populated and formed by non-humans, you know, you, the same feelings that you and I have, you can read about in the ancient Greeks, right? Um, people haven't changed. And, and the idea that, that somehow this country is different is, you know, it, it, it's, all, it's not true. It's, it's just a different way of doing things, but we're still subject to the same pressures and same in, uh, temptations um, as any other human institution. But they, this is an emotional reaction. And we're not thinking with our frontal lobes, we're thinking with our emotions. So, but when I see liberals like um, 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 Rachel Maddow support the Oswald did a theory, well, I spoke to Alec Baldwin. He was gonna be, when Kappa had its, um, its uh, mock trial, um, it was Thursday and Friday. So Thursday night, we had a, a banquet dinner and Alec Baldwin, who's very interested in, in the assassination, agreed to speak. And before we were about to go on the stage, I said to him, um, why, is, why do you think that like people like Rachel Maddow and Chris Matthews support the Warren Commission thing? And he said, I'll tell you why. And he, he explained to me that in, in 2013, he had his own show on, on NBC on Friday nights. And he was going to do a 50th anniversary show. 
And he had all these great, he had Bobby Kennedy Jr. and a whole bunch of people that were going to talk about the assassination. At the last minute, the show gets canceled. And he didn't understand why. And his, he said his senior producer told him that it was the policy of the NBC network to support the Warren Commission findings. Um, I heard recently in an email from um, Judge Tonheim, it was a public email, so I'm, I'm okay to share this, that uh, when the Assassinations Review Board had contacted Walter Sheridan, who was Barbara Kennedy's right-hand person in the Department of Justice, and Walter Sheridan did some investigations privately for Bobby later on about the assassination. They asked Walter Sheridan for his files, and those files were at the JFK Library as part of the RFK collection. Uh, Walter Sheridan, this is in 1998, so the ARB's going out of business, right? They're under the time crunch. So um, Walter Sheridan drives to the JFK Library, takes all his papers, then drives down to New York, gives them to NBC. NBC refuses to give them to the ARB, technically on legal grounds, they claim. Walter Sheridan had done some work for NBC during the Garrison investigation. Um, apparently, Brian Williams tried to get NBC to change its mind. They refused to do it. To this day, those records are not part of JFK collection, even though the ARB identified them as assassination records. Another example of the media, you know, I mean, and yet the media will, like NBC and the other big media will go on this whole business about what's going on in Florida with the Trump uh, files, right? But what about, you know, it's like the pot calling the kettle black. It's got to be grandfathered in in some aspects. I mean, Oliver Stone is a, a war. I mean, he's a known name in the film industry, yet he has to go overseas to get his JFK documentary filmed. I mean, they did the same thing about the Russian doping scandal when it came to um, showing that the Russians cheated during the Olympics. That got funded and picked up on Netflix. But then his second documentary about Bezos and the Saudi connection, that didn't get picked up at all. It's this weird business and where their financial things are still invested. I can only think that they're grandfathered in on the basis of the 1035-960 document that was issued to every news outlet about critics of the Warren Commission. Um, and it's just so old, nobody talks about it. I mean, that's the only reason I can think of where I have on the FBI website, you can check this out and the CIA website. There's files on Platoon. There's files on JFK. There's files. I mean, just the movie, not the actual thing, but it's these attempts to embarrass or make the agency look bad. And that goes deep in every military movie where you look at the influence. I mean, Lone Survivor is basically a sign up at your local recruitment office. If you're a kid watching that thing, that's what I felt after I watched. It. I was like, holy crap. Well, I, I mean, can look, you know, all those war movies, for them to get all these great scenes of warships and stuff, they have to get cooperation with Department of Defense. So what they do is, okay, you want our cooperation, that's fine, but we want rights to review the script and, and the film. So it's all, yeah, yeah. look, every agency, this is something that goes on. It's always going to go on. And as the media becomes more and more corporatized and, and, more, and, and it gets bigger and more concentrated, there are other pressures that come on to the media um, that, you know, social media is now catching up. But, you know, we have look what happens just in the whole uh, now I'm going to get into your generation about this whole cancer culture. You have people that are pressuring corporations not to advertise on certain programs uh, because they disagree with 
with their viewpoint. Oh shit. You said cancer culture, cancel culture, cancel. Cancel culture. Yes. Yes. It was like, wait, we're getting cancer. Hang on. No, no, no. Cancel culture. And the idea that um, we are stifling free speech. Um, and, you know, the problem is when you stifle free speech, the thoughts that create the speech don't go away. When the pandemic, and we're going off topic here, but this is all part of the reason that I think Kennedy assassination is important. During the pandemic, I would get uh, notes from my neighbors saying, oh, the manager at the store is not wearing his mask. We should report him. And I would say, what are you guys, Stasi from East Germany? You don't report on your own neighbors like this. I mean, this is, you don't do that. But this is where they're, we're, it's like, why did we fight the Cold War? This is the way you're going to treat your fellow citizens. Well, it's and China's social credit system, which is snitching on your neighbor, you get a better tax return. I mean, that's the thing is like, I, and I, I've had Peter McCullough, I've had all those guys, uh, Robert Malone, uh, Pierre Corey, all those, I've had them on the show. Wow. I, there's a, I agree with that to a point, but also you notice like when you start talking to some of them, they'll start going to like 1984 type talks as well too. And the world order and the grand reset where I'm like, I don't think it's that far. I think it could possibly get there, but I just say, we got to ground it in some normalization. You should have bodily autonomy to yourself. You should be able to do as an individual, as long as it's not hurting another individual, make the proper choices that you feel are comfortable with your own life. Your education should be entirely up. To, I mean, there's a lot of areas where it's like, Look, a person's this is their rights. This is their human desired right. To, and Alex Jones is a good example. I don't I, he says some things I don't agree with. I will admit to that. But that court case, that overall money grabbing after him, I don't care where you stand. That's a message to anybody that wants to talk about the freedom of speech information. I'm a big person when it comes to not having censorship, but I also believe you should be responsible for your actions. But well, yeah, I think. Right. I think you should. Um, See, when I was in college, we learned Voltaire. Now, apparently, the the teaching of Voltaire was misattributed to him with somebody else. But we were told that Voltaire stood for the proposition that I may not agree with what you have to say, but I'll die for your right to say it. Um, and then under the First Amendment, as lawyers, we're taught, you know, the only thing you really can't say is fire in a theater, right? I mean, you can't say something that's going to put other people at risk. Um, but but free, amendments, free speech does not mean free speech without consequences. You can say what you want to say. There may be, you may, you may be sued or something may happen as a result, but you have to be able to, there has to be consequences, but you can't um, muffle the speech. And, and this is what they did with the Kennedy assassination. They, they squashed any dissent. Um, and then they got, it was harder in those days because there's a lot more media to try to, you know, envelope. But now is the concentration of media get, gets, you know, there, there's a lot more, well, for example, let's go back to 63. There was a, um, a newspaper that was gonna report about that German spy um, that Kennedy had an affair with. Um, and Bobby Baker was involved with that, you know, I forgot the name of the place, but it was in August of 63. And when Bobby Kennedy got a whiff, the article was going to run, he calls in the publisher and threatens to bring an antitrust suit against them if they didn't squash the article, because they had a whole bunch of newspapers and they had a radio stations and he was going to squash their empire. Well, imagine if you're, you know, a major corporation now and you got, you know, you own all these, I mean, now it's even more concentrated and you own theme parks and 
social media and radio and TV and movies. And now the government's going to say, hey, look, I can make your life hard for you. I, I I always tell people they don't need to go as far as saying the grand reset and all this. I go, it's just a smart business strategy. I mean, look at what good publicity does or look at what, you know, having a relationship with certain businesses and certain organizations and news outlets. It's real simple. You don't have to get a bunch of crap and people don't look into all this dirty stuff you're probably doing. I mean, it baffles me when people are surprised when all this stuff comes out later. Like I'm looking through the Watergate and all the church committee reports and the Senate intelligence reports. And I'm just like, yep, knew this, knew this, knew this, knew this. And everyone's like, oh my God, it's so shocking. I'm like, that's the thing is that it gets, uh, it turns into one of the situations where people roll their eyes when they think that it wouldn't be their government. They can believe if it's a foreign government doing something like that, because we're not them. Well, I mean, transparency, I mean, they're more open about what they do to their people over here. We're kind of like, hey, let's sweep it under the rug real quick. And, and you know, so during the Bush administration, Cheney has these meetings with the energy companies and about they were going to they create come up with a fracking exclusion. Now, this is part of my environmental, but, you know, they set it up in a way that it wasn't they didn't create um, records, federal uh, government records that were subject to the Freedom of Information Act. I mean, there's ways of meeting with people. Uh, you know, EPA or someone in the, the president's office could call a meeting of certain industries and say, look, we don't, this substance is causing a problem. You could voluntarily stop making it, or we can start bringing enforcement actions and tying you up in court and getting all about layout publicity and people aren't going to want to buy your products. And so they come up with an agreement, right? And this happens all the time. People think that they don't understand, uh, at those high levels, people know each other and you have conversations. So it's not a, it's not difficult to, to convince someone that owns NBC not to run the program because the government's saying, look, this is going to really rip the scab off some things that's, you know, not good for us, not good for you. And they do it out of patriotism. It's like happy wife, happy life. Yeah. And then look. You know, as recently as the the uh, Iraq War, when um, the New York Times was going with the story about weapons of mass destruction, you know, that was all ginned up. Again, they, our history is being repeated because they learned in the Kennedy assassination they can get away with it. And if you look at our history going backwards, Iran-Contra, the Iraq War, I mean, things have been ginned up to, to accomplish a policy goal. So, and I'm not... Um, people say, well, uh, you know, government, they can't keep secrets. Well, you know, a, a core, a cadre of very professional people can. So if it's three or four people and everyone's, everyone's decentralized, they don't know why they're doing things. Um, it's like with the banking crisis in 08. You had different players. You had the bank originators. You had the rating agencies. Everybody's doing their own little job in their own little silo, and they don't realize that what they're doing is a bad thing. I mean, they're contributing to a terrible outcome, which is overinflated mortgages, right? But I'm, I have criteria. I'm, I'm just, okay, we're going to use, instead of using uh, current rents, we're going to use projected rents. Okay, now the rating agency approves that. Um, you know, I have my guidelines. But each of these individual acts together create a, create an, a, a worldwide problem. And, and as people get more siloed, it's difficult for people to see their, their role in a problem. Uh, or their their role in some sort of bad thing that happened. It's it, there's no accountability because you, and then you have the national you have the top CEOs who aren't making any decisions except they give broad policy. 
you know, you try to, it's very hard to bring a fraud action against a CEO because you have to have intent and it's, it's, you know, very, it's a very specific kind of intent. So anyway, we're, we're getting way off topic here, but I'm just saying that uh, when I was a kid, World War I was 50 years old. And so I can certainly identify with your generation thinking Kennedy assassination is something historic. Why should I even be concerned about it? Because it's still affecting the things that happened with the assassination, the government's response to an uncomfortable situation. Um, you know, I think at some point uh, when information comes out, the fallback position is, well, we thought Castro had killed the president. And if we knew that if Castro killed the president, we'd be forced to go invade Cuba, uh, just for public pressure. And then that would bring Russia back in and the Cuban Missile Crisis would become a real live, would become World War III. So we did the right thing at the time, we thought, for the people then. That's going to be their eventual fallback position. You know, when everything comes out that, that you know, they, they're going to ask for a mulligan. <laughs> Basically, we, we thought we were doing the right thing for 40 million people. Because 40 million people were killed with World War III coming. So, um, but you can use that thinking in every generation. You know, uh, we have to get rid of Saddam Hussein because he's got weapons of mass destruction. Well, really wanted to get rid of him because he tried to kill my dad. But, you know, yeah. you come up with a good reason um, and then you have to hide it because it's, you know, you don't want to see how, how sausage is made. Um, Family jewels is what they call it, the family jewels. Yes, yes. So um, anyway, so we filed our lawsuit. Uh, the next step is for the government to uh, file an answer or file some motions to dismiss. Um, that's going to probably happen after the Biden memo comes out. And I suspect it's going to be before December 15th. Um, he issued his memo uh, four days earlier last year. He, I think, issued on the 22nd and was due on the 26th. So I wouldn't be surprised if the issues is a couple of days earlier. So um, what I would like to do is to have your listeners uh, write Biden or write your congressman or congressperson, either state or representative, and ask them to ask the president to release the rest of the record. Steve Cohen has a group of four representatives. Um, uh, I think it was uh, McGovern in Massachusetts, issue in in um, California, another one from Tennessee, and um, the guy from Maryland that ran the um, September, the January 6th hearing. Um, I think they're the ones that signed the last letter to the president, but um, a call to action, let the president know that, especially if you're young, because, um, uh, you know, the president is interested in mobilizing the young voters and, uh, you know, this would be an important thing for them to know that the young vote, young voters are still concerned about, they're concerned about the Kennedy assassination, just like they are about climate change. I mean, this is something that involves secrecy, classification, uh, knowing what our government's doing, how decisions are made. Um, and uh, so that would be something at the end of this call, if your listeners are so inclined to uh, contact the White House and just say, you know, we're, I'm calling to uh, ask the president to uh, release the rest of the JFK records on December 15th or write their congressman and say, can you uh, please ask the president to release the rest of the records? Larry, is there a place where people can find your links, man? You gave me enough of your time. I, uh, I have a, an, uh, a website. Uh, I believe it's, uh, well, it's, I think it's schnaff.com. 
I have the JFK website there. I also have a YouTube JFK CSI uh, where I have some stuff as well. Um, I don't have um, some of my written materials, but um, the project JFK has most of like the let the, the letters, the, the, the complaint um, on there. They have a page devoted to me on the JFK project page. That's probably the best place to go. And if you want to learn about the litigation, uh, Mary Farrell Foundation has a page devoted to it. And it's like, why did we follow the litigation and what's it about? Um, you know, under the Federal Records Act, the National Archives is supposed to contact the Department of Justice when they don't get cooperation from the agencies. And they have not done that ever. So we're asking them to do that as well, because uh, uh, people need to know that they are going to pay the price for continuing to delay these records. The grounds they're using do not comply with the act. Um, and uh, there's no good reason at this point in time, 60 years, I mean, there may be a handful of, pay, of, of documents that maybe truly pose a risk to some individual and their family, but uh, not 15,000. I'm going to link all your links in the description, Larry. Seriously, man, it's been a pleasure having you back or having you on the uh, podcast. You're welcome back anytime. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.